0: me?
1: Can you hear me on the phone? I do. I've got you coming out of every orifice. (laughs) I'm really not, you're breaking off quite badly. Hello and welcome to The Lock-In, where I finally get to talk to people I want to hear from in a place I want to be, the pub. For some
2: reason this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish. Oh, right. Where were we? I've forgotten. I have too.
1: This time we're talking to a man who's been called the world champion atheist. Richard Dawkins is a biologist and such an enthusiast for this theory of evolution that you could give in the nickname they gave to the great Victorian biologist T.H. Huxley, Darwin's bulldog. These days, and in his latest book, Outgrowing God, Richard Dawkins is best known for arguing that religious belief is a lot of man-made hooey, which, frankly, we ought to have abandoned years ago. Richard, you spend several pages in this book having a pop at Mormonism, which is transparent nonsense, I agree. I recall another time when you had a go at astrology. Do you think all religions are nonsense?
2: Yes, I do, but I suppose some of them are more damaging than others. Um, I mean, Mormon is, Mormonism is clearly nonsense, and you'd think that's all that needs to be said, but they did have a presidential candidate, I mean, who, didn't they, who might have oh, been that's elected. That's right, with the magic underpants! Um, and um, so they are taken seriously. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're men in suits who, who make fortunes, um, so somehow they manage to combine their truly ridiculous beliefs, and they really are ridiculous, because they do things like believe that the uh Native Americans are the lost tribes of Israel, that kind of thing. Um in the face of all the evidence. And yet they manage to become nominated as presidential candidates.
1: But why bother having a pop at them? It's clearly nonsense, and any thinking person can see that.
2: Well, you say that, and I, I see a lot in of sense in what you've just said, but um they do have enormous amount of influence, uh, not just Mormons, but, but um, I mean religious people generally have a huge amount of influence. And um, I, I must say I do worry a little bit about whether it's worth bothering to have a pop. I think in the case of Islam it probably is because there's such a lot of evil, there's such a sort of killjoy religion and apostasy, the penalty for apostasy is death, that kind of thing. Um, That is such an evil that I think we do have to fight it. I worry a bit about fighting Christianity, which is pretty harmless by comparison, but only by comparison.
1: I'm working on a book about the English Civil War, and when you read that Sir Thomas Wentworth in the 17th century sat at his wife's bedside reading the Bible and praying with her, that was obviously consolation. But what do you think when you read something like that?
2: It is consolation, and I have said before that I wouldn't actually go to somebody's dying bedside and tell them it's all a lot of rubbish. I mean, I'm, I'm sufficiently sympathetic, empathetic not to do that. Um, but I do value truth as well. And so um, I write books. People don't have to read my books. They can read them if they, if they want to. But as I said, I, w- I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go to a, to a dying uncle and tell him your, your faith in, in, in heaven is all nonsense.
1: But we're all scared and frail. What's wrong with belief-giving comfort? Oh,
2: well, um, I, I, I rather like quoting Stephen Pinker on that. Um, if you're being attacked by a tiger, you may tr- give yourself comfort by persuading yourself that it's a rabbit, but actually it's not. It is a tiger. I mean, we have to face up to reality. I don't think you of all people, Jeremy, would want to uh, defend
1: falsehood because falsehood gives you comfort. I don't want to defend falsehood, but I'm not against people being comforted.
2: No. Um, I'm not against people being comforted, but I think that truth is an Im- immensely strong value in itself. I suppose, well, from a scientist's point of view, if if, if we don't value truth, then we're absolutely nowhere. You, you, as a as a public figure, have always valued truth, and I think that you wouldn't really take very kindly to a politician who defended himself for telling lies because it gives him comfort.
1: No, that's true, but when you think about something like Christmas, isn't there an argument to be made for cultural familiarity? I do think there is, yes,
2: and I, I, I enjoy Christmas carols and things, things like that. I mean, I, I was delighted to be invited a few years ago to go to the uh, Festival of Carols at King's College, Cambridge, and I loved that, and it was, it was moving. I can, I can be moved by Handel's Messiah, by, uh, by Bach's Passions... Um, When I did, um, what's it called, Desert Island Discs, Um, Sue Lawley took me to task because I chose um, an aria from Bach's St. Matthew Passion. She said, how can you, you know, and I I said, well, it's music, it's beautiful music, and I can even be moved by the the drama of the story, the drama of Jesus's passion. It's fiction, but you can be moved by fiction, you can be moved by Romeo and Juliet, although it is fiction.
1: When did you last go to church? Oh, um
2: probably on that occasion at King's College Cambridge. Um yes, that probably was it.
1: Does it bother you that sometimes people could read this book and think there's a lot of contempt for people who believe?
2: I've always got on very well with bishops and archbishops and people like that. I don't I hope I don't come across as having contempt. I suppose I do have contempt for humbug. I I do have contempt for people who distort the truth. For example, um, um, when, when a vicar goes into the pulpit and starts preaching about Adam and Eve, and he talks about the sin of Adam and the sin of Eve and things, and he knows perfectly well that they never existed. And yet he's kind of confusing, he's blurring the line between metaphor and reality. And as far as sophisticated theologians are concerned, they know that he's blurring the line, but the congregation probably doesn't. And they get confused by the, this blurring between fact and metaphor. For him it doesn't make any difference, but I think that's dishonest, and I think they need to
1: be called out. But your criticism doesn't only apply to the Old Testament and Genesis, which is clearly a myth. Well, yes, and, uh, but if you go to America, you'll notice
2: that they don't treat it as a myth, they treat it as fact. And um, there are, I mean, something close to 40% of, of Americans think that the book of Genesis is literally true.
1: These people have the vote. What age group is your book intended for?
2: I was thinking of about 15,
1: maybe 15, 16, that kind of age. When they're old to think about it for themselves.
2: I like to think that, but, of course, plenty of 12-year-olds, plenty of 10-year-olds can also think for for themselves. I'm passionately against indoctrinating children when they're too young to defend themselves. So I'm very anxious not to be tarred with that brush, and I, I hope that came across.
1: But I remember taking my then young daughter, about six or seven, to Sunday school, and they did the myth of the flood, and I tested her on it afterwards, because it seemed to me that you have to know these things in order to live in our society. Isn't that right?
2: Definitely so. Um, you have to know these things just like you have to know Winnie the Pooh and Alice in Wonderland and things like that. This is a part of our culture, important part of our culture. We can't do without it. Um, but as I said, I think it's 38% of Americans now believe literally that Noah's Ark happened. And there's something very unpleasant about the story of Noah too, of course. It's not just the, the charming story of the animals going in two by two. It's also um, that God drowned the entire world. Because people were sinful, and that's a very, very unpleasant story, which isn't
1: which isn't stressed when when you play with
2: your child's Noah's Ark.
1: Well, I remember when I was testing her on Noah's Ark, I recited the story to her about the dove coming back with its olive branch in its beak, and the fact that that showed the whole world wasn't under water. She burst into tears, and I said, "What on earth is the matter?" And she said. You lift out the turkey that lives on the hill, it's at that level, isn't it? It is. It's just the same thing. The are on the pussycat, exactly. I just wonder though, if children grow up looking reality in the face, whether they don't then lose some sense of mystery about life, some sense of imagination. I worry about that, and I, I, at times I've,
2: I've worried about fairy stories, Grimm and Hans Anderson and things, and whether I mean I think I've been persuaded that they are beneficial on the whole. Um, but if they lead children to think that magic is possible, that, that princes can turn into frogs or the other way around, um, that that somehow teaches a bad lesson because there's something, it's not just that, that frogs don't as a matter of fact turn into princes, there's a deep principle there, they cannot turn into princes, it, it, it's, it's built deep into fabric of science. And I have been persuaded by friends that I'm being too too strict about that um, and that actually charming stories about frogs turning into princes don't do any harm. Um, but the Bible stories, as I said, many Americans do take it literally. And so the frogs turning into princes in the book of Genesis and, and the Bible generally is taken seriously and literally. And that is anti-scientific, anti-truth.
1: Don't your friends say to you, oh, lighten up, Richard, it's just a fairy story?
2: Yes, sometimes, Um, and of course, to some extent, they're right. Um, But then you have people being put to death because they have declared themselves apostates because they no longer believe in Allah. Um, You have um, people being persecuted not just in history, not just in, in 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 older history, but but today, this this very day, there are people in jail in Islamic countries because they have blogged about uh, not believing in Allah anymore, that kind of thing. And this is serious stuff. I can't be laughed off.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
1: you describe a fascinating experiment conducted by a friend of yours, Melissa Bateson. She talks about, or had this honesty chart for money for the coffee jar, and when she illustrated it with flowers, the level of evasion among people who ought to be paying for their coffee was much higher than when she illustrated it with a pair of eyes. So that means even well-educated scientists behave differently if they think they're being watched. It's an astonishing story. I mean, it's shocking both from, from the honesty point
2: of view and from the, the, it's not that they really believe they're being watched. It's, it's got to be a, an ethological and instinctive thing of some sort. I mean, downstairs in, in my flat at the moment, there's a place where people store their bikes and there's a, a notice that says, we are watching you. You'll be, you'll be seen if you, if, you're, if you steal a bike. And there's a pair of eyes there. And and this is again it's the same thing. I, I wrote to Melissa about that and she said, Yes, they're everywhere. They're they're being used all the time.
1: Yeah, but that isn't God. It's just the possibility your colleagues might notice.
2: Yes, but the eyes that are the eyes that are painted on the on the paper are not really there. And so there's something instinctive going on. You you, you feel you're being watched even though even though you know you're not. Um and- and um, I mean, I think that's partly why the God principle works. Pe- people, people really do believe they're being watched by God. So although there's nobody there to actually see them steal or jode the railway, whatever it is, um, they, um, they they feel that God is watching them. When I was a child, I, th- I thought not only God watching me, but all my ancestors, all, all my you know great grandparents and things were were watching me from heaven.
1: When did the scales fall from your eyes?
2: Oh, uh, I suppose about 12 or so.
1: But there are plenty of the Ten Commandments that you agree with, aren't there? Well, people
2: say that, but when you actually look at the Ten Commandments, I mean, thou shalt not kill, that's great, but um, thou shalt not make a graven image, thou shalt have no other god before me, etc. I mean, most most of them are Bronze Age stuff, um, and you don't... When people say they believe in the Ten Commandments, they believe in one Ten Commandment or two. Thou shalt not bear false witness and so on. Um, but they haven't really thought about it very hard.
1: Without religion, we just fight wars for other things, wouldn't we? We are going to fight wars about water shortly.
2: Yes, uh, and of course the First World War and the Second World War were, were, were not primarily yeah. about religion. They were about um, nationalism, patriotism. Um, the First World War especially Um about extraordinary sort of nonsense about patriotic, you know, our, our side are better than your side kind of thing. Um, and as you say, in the future, we may be fighting wars on other things. I've never said that we only fight wars about religion, but religion is a particularly arbitrary and pointless reason to fight a war.
1: The sort of atheism you embody is the product of scientific knowledge, isn't it? It's an, is it an inevitable consequence of, human evolution you think that we grow out of God? I would like to think so and I
2: think the evidence suggests that that's true Um, if you look at uh, poll data if you look at the number of people who who profess belief in God it is going down even in America it's going down certainly going down in Western Europe Um, not in the Islamic world yet but there are encouraging signs even there actually very encouraging signs I don't know whether I've told you before That The the God Delusion, my previous atheism book, is is now available as a downloadable PDF, and it's been downloaded 13 million times in Arabic.
1: That's very impressive. Richard, what do you think will happen to you when you die? Well, I
2: might be cremated or I might be buried, um, and that's about it.
1: That's a rather prosaic explanation of existence, isn't it? That it's all material.
2: If you read my books I think you'll agree that I'm not prosaic really. I mean I, I, I am poetic, I, I, I love I love science for poetic reasons um, and I, I believe I, I have what I like to think of as an imaginative view of the world. I think that the, the privilege of being allowed to spend a few decades understanding why we're here in the first place is an in, enormous aesthetic and wonderful privilege
1: then why do so many people believe nonsense?
2: I think because of childhood indoctrination is probably the most important reason. Um, I I had conversations with highly sophisticated, intelligent theologians. Um, Father George Coyne, for example, who was the leading Catholic astronomer. He ran the Pope's observatory. And um, we had a long conversation uh, on television and um, it ended up, it was clear that he... His beliefs were exactly the same as mine. So I said, but then, Father Coyne, why do you believe in God? And he said, upbringing. It was as simple as that. He he didn't really, in an
1: intellectual sense, didn't believe at all. But
2: he, he had to go on believing because he was brought up Catholic.
1: That's why the Catholic Church is so re- so reluctant to surrender the care of souls, isn't it? Do you believe souls exist? Well,
2: obviously, a matter of definition, but... um. Uh, I, I don't believe that there is anything immaterial. I mean, I think that, that 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 the subjective sensation that I have and you have of feeling like a person—that that we are a subjective re, a subjective entity—that that is a material phenomenon that's produced by brain stuff. It's produced by um, neurons firing in the in the brain. There's there's nothing immaterial. There's nothing that will survive the decay of the brain. So I don't believe in that sort of soul. No. But I wrote a book called Science in the Soul, which was about my um, quasi-religious, spiritual feeling about science and about the beauty of reality. Um, I wrote another book called The Magic of Reality on the the same theme. Um, So in in that sense of soul, I suppose I do believe in it.
1: Of course you can't be sure there's no God, because that's a belief in itself. What if you're wrong? Of course you can't be sure. But it's the same as the tooth fairy or or Mother Goose, isn't it? You
2: can't be sure that the tooth fairy doesn't exist, but you've got no no reason to think that that, that he or she does, Um, and nobody takes it seriously. Um, The reason we have to talk about God at all is that plenty of people do take it seriously.
1: What about Pascal's wager, the idea that it does you no harm to believe because you don't lose anything if you're wrong?
2: Well, Pascal's wager... What if you believe in the wrong God? What if you get up there and discover it's Baal? And you've been worshipping the wrong one all this time. <laughs>
1: so there is no religion
2: which could tempt you? I don't think so, no. I'm, I mean, the, ne- the nearest I get to being tempted is a, a sort of physicist's argument, which might something like the laws of physics are too good to be true. The laws of physics look as though they've been tailor-made, that kind of thing. Um, but that is so leagues away from the kind of God who listens to your prayers, forgives your sins, or fails to forgive your sins, that kind of thing, that um, if if God is a physicist, then he's an entirely different kind of animal from the sort of God that that any religious
1: person believes in. Well, it's very close to intelligent design, that profession, isn't it?
2: It is, and I don't hold to it. I, I should stress that in case I'm
1: misunderstood. Um I don't
2: think that there is any reason to believe in intelligent design at all. I do not believe in any kind of supernatural intelligence. But if you were to twist my arm and say, when do you come closest to being tempted to believe in a supernatural intelligence? It would be something like that. What about beauty, though? I yield to no one in my appreciation of beauty. Um, It's got nothing to do with religion. Except insofar as religious people have written beautiful music and painted beautiful paintings.
1: In your book, there are pictures of starlings, murmurations of starlings in the sky, for example. They're beautiful. They are amazing, aren't they? Absolutely wonderful. I intend to go and look at them personally this
2: winter in Otmore. So what's behind them? Is it just chance? Well, I mean, it is a most wonderful, wonderful phenomenon. Um, And it has been simulated on computers. We know how it's done because computer simulations work. And the way it works is that an individual starling is programmed, not not the flock, just an individual is programmed. And once you've got the individual programmed, you then, as it were, clone it up and release thousands of those individuals in your computer. And they behave like a flock in exactly the same way as real starlings do. It's a most remarkable demonstration of the power of simulation.
1: It's very interesting that it's on the same page as a picture of the Sagrada Familia Church in Barcelona, and a termite castle in presumably Australia or somewhere. That's right. Isn't that wonderful? Um, this was
2: brought to my attention by Dan Dennett, the philosopher, um, whom you should talk to, by the way, if you haven't talked
1: Fellow to Fellow atheist. At uh, yes, of
2: course. Well, so are we all. I mean, you are too, of course.
1: I am, but I do have moments of doubt. Yes.
2: Well, that's fair enough that's respectable um is it i think i could probably cure you of them given enough time but but yes i think it's respectable
1: it's so arrogant though richard well
2: no i mean think about the, the tooth fairy again you don't. i mean you could say that technically you have doubts about the tooth fairy too it's just possible
1: no it's not possible i've been the tooth fairy it's not possible <laughs> yes
2: no i i mean I think that the most powerful argument actually is that um, the whole scientific enterprise, at least my part of it, is geared towards explaining complexity, explaining the existence of complicated things like engineers who are capable of designing anything. And so if you're going to cop out of that by postulating a divine engineer who was there right from the start, you've undermined the entire scientific enterprise you betrayed the search for truth
1: it's not malign is it is it worth bothering with it is not
2: malign in the hands of a decent bishops and vicars it is malign in the hands of crusaders and um islamic so-called
1: scholars well they're all mad of course
2: yes but they're very powerful they have huge influence over enormous numbers billions of people
1: so there is nothing in Islam either that would attract you? Well, architecture, that kind of thing, but, but no,
2: there, no there, there is nothing, no.
1: Richard, thank you very much for talking to us today. Nice to hear you again. Yes, and you too. Richard Dawkins taking no prisoners, as we've come to expect, I suppose. Next week, I've got an altogether different type on the show, Logan Roy or as he's known in real life, Brian Cox. Do turn up for that, and as ever, stay safe.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus,